Ketzel, and I'm your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by my colleagues, Vice President and Principal Analyst Nikki Briggs, and Executive Partner and Senior Analyst Phil Brunker to discuss the growing market for satellite connectivity and how leaders in a variety of fields should approach it. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us, Laura. Looking forward to it. Excellent. So let's start off by scoping this a bit, just so everybody who's listening is on the same page about exactly what kind of space technology, i.e. satellite connectivity, we're going to be talking about today. So Phil, can you give us the lay of the land so we know where we're going? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's worth noting why this is a new area for Forrester and why we've researched the topic. I guess we were curious about the developments in the markets, you know, over and above the media interests around billionaires investing in space. You know, we wanted to know what's beyond the excitement of space tourism, for example. What does space tech mean for enterprises? What are the opportunities and what business problems could be solved? Because before, space used to be the premise of large-scale complex contracts in government with aerospace manufacturers. So why are we seeing significant private, private sector investment? And we identified that most of the interests and opportunities were around the developing area of next generation low earth orbit satellite solutions. And we identified that as our primary, primary focus area. And low earth orbit satellites or LEO satellites, um, they orbit at 500 to 2000 kilometers from earth which is significantly lower than traditional geostationary uh, orbit satellites. And their lower orbit means high-speed connectivity with lower latency, and that offers opportunities for innovative solutions, especially when you integrate it with other technologies like IoT, AI, and um, data analytics, for example. Got it. Okay. So given that there are a whole variety of terrestrial and also other kinds of satellite connectivity, I'm curious what's driving the increase in interest in this now. So, Nikki, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why this is so interesting at the moment. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Laura. And I think the thing to keep in in our minds as we go through this is space technology has changed beyond recognition in the last sort of 10 to 12 years. You know, this is back when I worked in the sector. And, you know, it used to be seen as something that was very risky and something that was very expensive. And, and that's why it was only relevant for governments and the space agencies and maybe a few aerospace firms. And th the big thing that's changed is, you know, it is becoming much more accessible to, to everybody. And that's why we're seeing all of this venture capital money flowing in. And the two big things that are driving this change, to, to answer your question, Laura, Firstly, the cost of launching things into space has come right down. Uh, so it's becoming much, much more cost effective. And then secondly, um, Phil was talking about this new generation of LEO satellites. They are much, much smaller and much, much more cost effective to build than before. And similarly, because they're so much closer to Earth, they do have lower latency, as Phil said, and that makes all sorts of applications possible that simply weren't before. So that's really what's behind the change that we're seeing. And um, just to pick up on um, what Nikki said about the, um, the cost coming down, of course, the other reason is um, the likes of SpaceX 
with their reusable rocket technology. And in many ways, SpaceX has disrupted the market in the same way as Tesla has done for the, the auto market. And uh, just to emphasize the extent of uh, the growing interest in the market, we've seen a steep increase in the number of LEO satellites that have been launched into orbit. Um, back in 2018, uh, it was around the 500 figure. Um, in two, uh, 2020, it was um, uh, two, just under 2,000. And this year, it'll be more than 2,000. And uh, we expect that to triple in the next uh, five years. So, Phil, I wanted to ask you a bit of a follow-up question there, which is the LEO satellites can't be sort of all advantages over past technologies. We've just talked about all the ways in which they are smaller, cheaper, easier to build, etc. What are the uh, problems with LEO satellites that we see? If we talk specifically about the, the satellites um, first, and then I think later we can talk about the broader market dynamics, but in terms of the satellites, well, because they're closer to Earth, um, they whiz and orbit around the planet much quicker than uh, uh, satellites further out, such as those in geostationary orbit. So you need a lot more of them. So you need quite a large uh, constellation of satellites to get coverage. And the other thing to bear in mind is that actually much of the planet um, is, is covered by ocean. Um, so to get coverage uh, in in across areas where, where you have populations, again, you need uh, quite a large number of satellites. Uh, the other point, as you mentioned, about them being closer to Earth is that can be a har harsher environment, uh, so they're susceptible to um, uh, radiation and uh, atmospheric drag, which degrades the satellites over time, and fundamentally that means that they have to be refreshed every five to seven years. That's just a few examples, but we can talk about the wider risks later. Okay, so then let's turn to those challenges and risks since we've uh, since we started to talk about them just now, the, because those are the specific challenges that one has with the Leo satellites, particularly. But there are a whole there's a whole broader swath of challenges and risks that are everyone should be aware of and be very interested in figuring out how to solve. So, Nikki, I wonder if you could broaden the aperture for us there and tell us a little bit about the challenges and risks in the broader space, space, as it were, <laughs> that we have to be aware of over the next few years. Yeah, for sure. And, and there are a lot of them. And what I think is really helpful, Laura, is to kind of categorize them a little bit, because some of these are risks that the space industry themselves are very well aware of, they're actively thinking about them and working on them. And then there's another class of challenges that are maybe a little bit more relevant for, for potential business buyers and users of space. So I'll, I'll talk more about the first category. And, you know, Phil alluded to this earlier on when he was talking about, you know, you, you need quite a lot of these satellites and, and it's sustainability. Um, and when we talk about sustainability, yes, you have to think about you know, sustainability involved with the launches of getting them all up there. But actually, what worries the space industry more is um, the risk of debris. Because when you've got loads and loads of satellites flying around, there's chances that they might bump into one another or they might get hit by other debris that's flying around. And if you leave that problem unchecked, what happens is it, um, it creates a cascading effect. The debris collides with another satellite, creates more debris, and eventually there's more and more of it. It's called, um, it's actually got a name, it's called Kessler syndrome. 
And in a worst case scenario, that could actually render the whole of low Earth orbit completely inoperable and they'll have to clean the whole thing up. So that's a massive, massive area that's keeping them awake at night. Another huge, huge area is regulation. Because if you think about the pace of change, how quickly all of this has come, the regulators, they, they just can't keep up. You know, and we've seen this in other industries as well. You know, we've seen this in AI. And so what the space industry is calling for is they, they really want a, much more of a highway code to keep everybody accountable. Um, you know, today they're having to manage all of it through spectrum allocations um, because the spectrum is finite. Um, so they manage it by, you know, if you if you have access to the spectrum, you get priority there. But longer term, much more regulation is needed. Um, and there are other things as well. Um, you know, Phil alluded to the lifespan. You know, these satellites don't last very long, only five to seven years. So they need to make sure that their business models are economically viable so they can make that money back quickly. There's a there's a long list of challenges. I could keep going, but I won't. I mean, Phil, you probably <laughs> build on that yourself and maybe talk about the business ones too. Yeah, so I mean, those space industry risks and challenges impact businesses who are going to be entering space. I mean, if we think about the space debris ex uh, example, uh, insurance, like many of these satellites are not actually covered by insurance. I think the figure is something like 50%. So what happens if one of these satellites <clears throat> causes debris issues or more critically is damaged due to the debris? How, do, how would that impact your service? How would it, does that disrupt your business and what level of protection might you have? Uh, a second area to think about is uh, data privacy. So technically, um, the reach of privacy laws, such as the EU GDPR, stop at what's called the Kármán line, which is the notional boundary between Earth and space, which is 62 miles above the planet. Uh, so even the satellites are <clears throat> at the relatively low orbits or above the Kármán line, but actually, where does the G um, privacy laws kick in? Well, we think that the satellite service providers should still comply uh, with the guidelines because they're, <laughs> they're, they're on Earth and uh, that's where the services are be being provided from. But that's something you'll need to think about. Uh, one other um, area that I'll cover, um, just because it's important, is the whole aspect of cyber cyber security or even standard security. Um, you know, satellites and their, their associated ground network infrastructure, they can be susceptible to interference and can even be shot down by um, anti-satellite missiles, uh, which we've seen um, last year. Um, um, LEO in particular, because they have a large ground infrastructure and a large uh, number of satellites, they can be somewhat a little bit more uh, susceptible. Uh, the satellites themselves can be protected against denial of service attacks, but their terminals can be um, vulnerable to malicious code injection, for example. So again, these are some of the other areas that you need to think about and validate with service providers. So given all of the challenges that you've just outlined and the risks that we still don't have terrific answers for, that begs the question of how much attention should everyone listening to this podcast be paying to these developments right now? Should they be in wait and see mode or what should they be doing? That's a great question, Laura. And I think it's not so much that they, they should be paying attention. They actually already are paying attention to, um, to some of these areas. Um, I don't know whether you know, but we recently did a, a network and telecom study 
And what we heard from that is that over 50% of the respondents were already actively considering either LEO or, or, or geostationary satellites as a critical part of their, their future business networking strategy. So, so they really are paying attention to this. That being said, I, I do think what we're going to see here is um, some, some differences um, in interest, depending on whether a company is operating within a B2C or a B2B environment. Um, now, if I take if I take the B2C folks, you know, for sure, they're going to be interested in all of these new markets that are going to open up by connecting uh, people that were previously not connected. But um, frankly, that's going to take a little bit of time because today the economics simply don't stack up, you know, based on current subscription pricing models. You know, that's not going to be relevant in large swathes of sub-Saharan Africa, say. The more immediate growth is going to come from B2B and the downstream business applications there. But, you know, that being said, I, I think in future, one day, every company uh, is going to be a space company to some extent in that their businesses are reliant on data from space. Um, you know, Phil and I heard a really interesting anecdote when we were when we were doing this research um, that I'd love to share, actually, that the, the largest space company today is actually Uber. So what I'd say to people listening is that if, if your business model is one that sees you operating in very, very distributed locations like them, you know, that might be a reason to sit up and pay attention if you're not already. So let's drill a little bit further into applications that you're seeing of LEO satellite connectivity right now? Because there are some already, as Nikki was pointing out earlier. So let's get a little more specific about what's out there in the world that people might want to take inspiration from. So high, high speed and connectivity and lower, lower latency offers new IoT solutions for remote monitoring and maintenance, for example. Uh, I know of a major energy company uh, with a solar farm in a remote desert location. And they obviously need to monitor the condition and well-being of their solar, solar panels and other equipment. And they can now do this in near time. Uh, if we think about uh, the maritime and the aviation sectors, uh, they're interested. You know, younger maritime employees, they want to stay connected while at sea. Um, and today's flyers, um, you know, they, they want to stream, stay and communicate and work in the same way as they do on the ground. So the aviation industry is looking at that as a differentiator. Uh, another area, if we think about uh, oil and gas and mining, you know, with the potential for um, we now have the potential for real-time safety for uh, remote workers in harsh environments because of the low, lower latency. Because Leo could allow mine workers to repair mining machine machinery or faulty remote power grids. Uh, in real time using, say, augmented reality type solutions. Um, so, so there's a few examples um, to, to start with, Nikki. I'd say anything safety critical, uh, anything to do with remote locations, um, anything that needs to be done in, in real time, in effect, um, th th those are essentially the, the, the major use cases, and they do span multiple industries, as Phil described. 
Yeah, I think there, there is a, there's one other area as well that, that that we'll see develop. I mean, earth observation has been a, around a long time, but actually we can get a le greater level of granularity with um, being low earth orbit satellites because we can get down to 30 centimetres granularity on the planet. Um, so we're seeing examples of where firms can now better prepare for the impact of um, systemic risks. Uh, one good example is uh, the insurance firm uh, Swiss Re partnering with uh, an earth observation data provider. And what they're doing is they're using uh, their, their technology to more accurately and uh, quickly estimate flood damage uh, to streamline claims processing, for example. Okay, so we've talked about some of the applications that are either happening right now or very near future. Let's talk a little bit about the timeline overall for all of this. So if you can give us a sense for what else will happen in the short term, what does the medium term look like, and what does the long term horizon look like with kind of approximate years from present bands, that would be really helpful. Yeah, I'll, I'll call out some of the highlights uh, across short, medium, and long term. So short term, we're looking at a one to two year horizon. Um, and what we'll see is um, the satellite providers or telcos offering integrated service. So you can imagine Leo would be converted to other networking technologies such as 5G. So it's all about that integrated service so that you as a business don't need to worry about the, the specific networking technology, but you but you can just have that consistent uh, connectivity irrespective of location. We also see Starlink and the likes of Amazon Kuiper when they got started, shifting their focus from not just um, on consumer, on small business space, but actually recognizing the opportunities in the B2B market and focusing more in the enterprise and government markets. And I think we'll start to see some target cybersecurity attacks on Leo constellations as they, they start to grow. So that's short term. I think the medium term is when we'll see things really take off. Um, but that, of course, depends on how the sector addresses some of the challenges and risks that we talked about. Certainly in North America, um, the consumers will, you know, the, the existing geo broadband consumers will certainly shift from their incumbent providers to the Leo offerings because of the, the lower latency offering. Um, we'll also see enterprises. Um, taking uh, on IoT services and that increasing globally across maritime, mining and aviation sectors. And finally, long term, which is a five years and beyond time horizon. Um, whilst Leo broadband offerings will still not be pro profitable, despite the level of investments that Starlink and Kuiper are pouring in and they'll be operating at loss. We think that the uptake will remain positive, notably in the North American consumer market. And at that stage, I think that's when we really see the um, sat Leo satellite data and imaging services go mainstream. Um, of course, there will be some legal challenges around eavesdropping and data privacy. Nikki? Yeah, I mean, I think the way to, to think of this is, you know, we're almost at an inflection point today you know, we have to keep reminding ourselves, you know, the infrastructure is still being built and launched, you know, Starling, what, they're at a, somewhere between a quarter and a third of the way through their installation. OneWeb had a big setback to their launch schedule. Um, Amazon, you know, still, still to get launching. So, you know, we have some lead time. We have a little bit of thinking space here. 
Um, and of course, you know, to, to what Phil was saying about those longer term predictions, they are all notwithstanding the fact that what if some of these risks and challenges that we identified, they could cause those timescales to to get set back a bit. So I, I think that's important to keep in mind. So given all of that, I, I thought I'd drill in a little bit on the regional bit that you, you both alluded to in your discussion just now, because it sounds to me like there are going to be some differences by region in uptake of Leo services particularly for kind of reasons of the existing market. So I wonder if you could give us a sense of that it sounds like the North American market is going to be the most fruitful uh, in the in sort of short and medium term. Can you give us a sense of why that is and how you expect other regions to, to develop over time? If you start by comparing, say, the North American market with the European market, we actually, in Europe, we enjoy considerably better connectivity than large swathes of North America. So they have a little bit more appetite for for, the, for this and they're prepared to pay a little bit more. So we would see that the European market probably wouldn't withstand price points that North America will tolerate. And while we're talking about price points, if you contrast that with, say, sub-Saharan Africa, you know, there's no way they're going to be tolerating, you know, a subscription package of, you know, $100 a month to get, you know, real time zero latency for their gaming. You know, they're very, very happy, you know, working off the basis of vouchers to access geostationary satellites. And that's working fine for them. So initially, most of the interest will be in the North American marketplace, while some of the economics catch up in the in the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true for the uh, consumer broadband space. But the other dynamic of this is, of course, the, the B2B market. Um, and if we think about what Leo offers, that's, uh, you know, businesses, particularly in oil and gas and mining, transportation, logistics will get, is coverage in the remote areas um, where satellite connectivity isn't particularly good. So I'm thinking about the polar regions, you know, latitudes above 77 degrees. You know, if you're operating in those environments and you need to connect to your people and assets in those environments and gain gain uh, data or insight on those assets, then you know that that's that, that's a good use case. If you're operating um, across oceans uh, where there's you know limited connectivity. Um, it exists, but not at the low latencies that we're talking about with Leo. Then you know there's there's some good potential uptake there. You know, think about logistics, think about uh, shipping, and any other aspects of transportation. So that there are use cases in the business the business area that are outside that are independent, I guess, of of regions, but because but it's related to the remote environments. So given this rather complicated picture of regional differences, the kind of different time horizons that you both outlined, the risks and challenges that we face, and the colossal opportunities of steadily kind of more accessible from a cost uh, perspective satellite tech. If for all the folks who are listening to this, who are interested in it, what should they think about in getting started? And kind of how should they think about the next couple of things that they should do over the coming, say, one to three years? I'd recommend um, three things, really. So firstly, 
treat it as you would approach any other emerging technology innovation. Do your research, start with undertaking pilots to test uh, use cases and importantly, build re relationships with partners. Uh, but in doing that, uh, don't be blinded by the science. You know, it's important to be an informed buyer. So what I mean by that is be cognizant of the risks um, and don't be swayed by the promises because there is a certain amount of hype in the market and you will want to watch out for the hype. You know, it can be a bit hyperspace, uh, if you like. And finally, um, it's important to understand how you will time the market um, based on your risk appetite. So uh, again, it's about taking the same approach as you would with any emerging tech innovation, be clear on what the big business problems that you might need to solve and how this technology can help you and weigh that up with your risk appetite um, and your approach to uh, prototyping and, and so forth. Yeah, you know, nobody wants to be that person, you know, the one that made a, a slightly wacky investment on behalf of their business. And then guess what, two, three years later, you know, one of the challenges that Phil and I described actually comes to fruition. So completely agree with Phil, you, you have to go in with your eyes open, you have to think about the risks. And you have to ask yourself, you know, not just chasing shiny objects, but how can it actually help your business do something better or faster or cheaper or um, more safely than you're doing it today. And, you know, when you've done that, you need to quantify it. You need to codify it into your business case to make sure that the business case is, is robust and, and you're not just chasing these shiny objects. And, you know, I think if you do do these things and you are cautious, then yes, you know, I think there's a lot of promise here for sure. Got it. And Nikki, one more question for you on the suppliers in this space, which is some of them are established companies uh, and some of them are kind of small space startups. So when you're thinking about buying services from these kinds of companies, are there particular things that you should pay attention to? Yeah. And, and this comes down to when you have a new innovation like this and it's something that people haven't bought before. You know, it's, it's the old sort of, well, we don't know what we don't know kind of scenario. And this is where partnering with the right provider can really, really help. And, you know, sometimes it's going to be really straightforward. You know, you're just going to work with your existing telecoms provider and they're going to just naturally take care of all of the space stuff and you don't need to think about it and you'll have SLAs in place. If you're trying to do something a little bit more elaborate, you might work with a systems integration partner, for instance, and a lot of them are starting to um, announce space capabilities themselves. Um, the other thing I'd say is, you know, if you are sort of trying to access the industry directly, don't forget there's there's a lot of help out there, you know, not just from us, but, you know, there are incubation networks um, that the agencies themselves, they actually have skin in the game. It's it, it, They often have a vested interest in helping businesses like you um, to um, to broker connections with the, the space industry. So there are all sorts of different op opportunities for, for partnering if you, if you don't sort of feel confident engaging with the industry directly. Well, this was an excellent discussion. Uh, Nikki and Phil, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Laura. Yeah, thank you. 
If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.